You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Everything would have seemed so overclouded with darkness, the darkness of confusion, the darkness of uncertainty. For three years, they had been following the Master. Though there had been some hard times along the way, things, quite frankly, were looking up. I mean, this past Sunday, thousands upon thousands of Passover pilgrims had welcomed the Master as he went down that road toward Jerusalem, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But, but now, this evening, dark clouds looming over those men, dark clouds of uncertainty and trouble. There had been, there had been talk of betrayal. It wasn't that someone outside the group was going to betray Jesus. Jesus had clearly said, one of you will betray me. And to somehow put ourselves in the place of those men reclining around that table and hearing those words, betrayal? One of us? Who? So, so disturbing. So troubling. And then just moments later, this interchange with Simon Peter, where Peter and his bravado had confessed that he would stick with Jesus, and, and Jesus said, Peter, before, before the rooster crows, before this night is over. You're, you're going to have already denied me three times, Peter. And to be one of the other ten and, and hear that, and to think, Peter, brave Peter, the, the only one who had the courage to get out of the boat that stormy night, Peter isn't going to have the courage to stand up for Jesus. I mean, if, if he can't stand up for Jesus, what about me? And the uncertainty that would have created in the hearts of the men around that table. And then, if that weren't enough, and then, and then Jesus begins talking about leaving. About leaving, departing. And, and saying, and, and, and where I'm going, you can't come with me. I mean, for three years, for... For three years, they had invested everything into following the Master. And, and now he's going to be leaving? And we can't go with him? What, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to us? Have these last three years all been for nothing? Talk of betrayal. Talk of denial talk of departure. I, I just, I cannot imagine what was in the hearts of those 11 apostles around that table that night. And then, amazing, amazing. Jesus said these words. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. What? 
What could Jesus say? What, what could Jesus say to untrouble a troubled heart? What clarity could he give to, to minds that were so confused? What, what hope could he give to hearts that were so troubled by everything that was happening? What, what, what could he say? How could he back that up? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Join me, please, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. And this morning, as the Lord gives us grace, we're going to look at the first 14 verses of John 14. Friends, as you turn to John 14, let's be honest. Life in this fallen world has plenty of trouble. And those of us who are Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, we are not exempt from troubles. Facing troubling situations as we live day by day, there are situations that confuse us, situations that concern us, situations that trouble us. There are plenty of individual troubles, aren't there? Troubles that loom over us, maybe medical issues, financial struggles, hating to go to our jobs, being bored with school, loneliness. Depression. There are plenty of relational troubles that worry us in our families and in our circles of friendship. Wayward children, negligent parents, unloving spouses, people that we love that are caught up with life affecting addictions family members, friends that are pursuing immoral lifestyles. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to our families? It seems so uncertain, so concerning, so troubling. And we haven't even talked about the troubles we face in our society. Abortion, homelessness, sex trafficking, Racism, political hatred. And we haven't even talked about the news this past week of pipe bombs and shootings in our home area at Pittsburgh in a synagogue. Oh, there's trouble. It's understandable that we live with troubled hearts. Even Christians can be troubled. So, what's the answer? You, you have troubles in your life. Well, what's the answer? Do we just give in and become cynics? Give in to despair? Live cynical lives? Or maybe it would be better to somehow dull the pain, dull the pain through chemicals of one kind or another. Or maybe through socially acceptable distractions. Or may, maybe as Christians we should just minimize the problems, pretend like they're not that big. You know, oh well, praise the Lord anyway. When inside our hearts are aching. Let's see how Jesus backed that up. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. How did he back it up? Are you open to John 14? You follow along as I read aloud the first 14 verses of John 14. 
These are the words of the Bible. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Hmm. So what's the cure for troubled hearts? What's the cure? Believing God. Did you see how Jesus began? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then the very next word is believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's not only the first verse of this passage, but at the end of this interchange in verse 11, how does that verse begin? Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father. The cure for a troubled heart is belief. It's belief in the right one, the right person, trusting the right person through life's confusions and fears. When Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled, he immediately pointed to himself and he gave this gracious command, believe God, believe in God, believe in me. So let's ask some questions. We're going to use the journalism questions this morning. As I wrestled with this text, my mind kept asking questions of the Bible, questions of the text, questions of Jesus. And the first question is belief. Belief in who? Believe in God, believe also in me. You know, it's easy to read that and think somehow these are two separate things. Well, I'll put my faith in God and I'll put my faith in Jesus. But I think if you look at this passage in its entirety, Jesus is not drawing our attention to one, two objects of faith, but to one object of faith. He's saying, believe in God, believe in me. And he's pointing us to one object of faith, the triune God. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Now, I try to give Philip some um, sympathy here. <clears throat> I'd say I'd stand in his sandals, but his sandals were off by this point. Jesus had just washed his feet. 
You know, if you were about to enter a very uncertain time, I mean, you'd put all your confidence in Jesus, you'd been following him, uh, trusting the master every day as you go through life, and, and now he's saying, I'm leaving, and you can't come with me. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want something to hang on to? Wouldn't you be looking for some reassurance, something to count on? And, and it seems to me like Philip is saying, you know, Jesus, if you would just give us this reassuring experience. You know, I could sure use some experience right now that would reassure me that everything's going to be all right. And he asks Jesus for something that probably almost every believer has wanted at one time or another in his life. I want to see God. Remember Moses asked that. Remember at Mount Sinai, Exodus 33, where Moses said, can I just see you? Can, can I just see your glory? And, and God says, Moses, you can't. I mean, it would kill you. Uh, but I'll let you have a glimpse. I'll let you have a glimpse of the departing gl- glory as I go by. And people have always wanted to see God. That's, that's what we were made for. And you're Philip saying, could you just give us the experience of seeing God? And it's interesting how Jesus responds. He doesn't say, well, I, I could do that, Phil. <laughs> no, he says, Philip, Philip, don't you get it? Don't you get it? If, if you've seen me, if you've seen me, you, you've seen the Father. And Jesus is making a point here. It, it's not that the Father and the Son are somehow not distinct. They are distinct personages. God exists in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and yet there's a unity between them. There's such a unity between them, a a unity of essence, of unity of purpose, of glory, that Jesus said, Philip, don't you understand? I came to show you the Father. If if you've seen me, you've, you've seen the Father. The Father dwells in me and I in him. It's very reassuring what Jesus says here. And then notice what he says to Philip in verses 9 through 11. We're not going to reread that whole passage, but if you, if you just see verse 9, it reminds us, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why would you say, show us the Father? So if we trust in Jesus, we're trusting in the Father. If we're trusting in the Father, we're trusting in Jesus. So belief, but not just belief in belief. We live in an experiential age where people just say, well, have faith, you know, look up. And I'm never quite sure what's that mean. It's not faith in faith. It's not just stirring up positive feelings. The sun will come up tomorrow. No, no, this is faith in in a person, in a person, in God himself and in his son, Jesus Christ. So... We're to put our faith in Jesus Christ. He's come to show us the Father. The next question we want to ask is, okay, that's the who question. Who do I put my faith in? I put my faith in the Lord. Now, what do I put my faith in him for? Or in other words, believe Jesus for what? What am I believing Jesus for? Jesus wants us to trust him that this current life, with all of its troubles, is not all there is talking to Gladding about this over breakfast this morning. And I said, you know, we live in a nearsighted age. We really do. And we're recalling, we're in our 60s, we're recalling back when we were children, there were still, you know, lots of songs about the return of Christ, the coming of the Lord. Marcos, thank you for leading us so well this morning, pointing us to that day. 
But you know, that's not common in churches today. People don't often talk about the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming, eternity. And yet Jesus, when he talks about, when you look at your troubles in this current life, life in this fallen world, I want you to remember this isn't all there is. There's an eternity awaiting you as my people. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. I'm back in chapter 14, 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. In my Father's house are many rooms. Just let that soak in for a minute. In in my Father's house are many rooms. Isn't that good news? Can you imagine being any place better than in God's home, God's house? I mean, maybe at some point in your life you uh, had the privilege of staying in someone's home that you really enjoyed. Maybe a relative or a friend or, or maybe someone you didn't know that well. Maybe someone of renown and for some reason you got to stay in their house overnight and think, that was really cool. Can you imagine getting to live in God's house like forever? <laughs> to live with God. Does that resonate with you? I mean, if you're a believer, I'm pretty sure that's resonating with you right now. You're thinking, that sounds so good. I go to prepare a place for you. There's a real place prepared for you. As I was thinking about this, it says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Now, Jesus doesn't say that the rooms have names on them, but what if they do? Well, if you're here today as a believer, there's a room, in a sense, with your name on it. That God has this, God has his home. It's, it's huge. It's expansive. And he has room for all of his believers. And if you're here today as a believer, you might have certain doubts. You might wrestle with that. You might find your hope weak or wavering at times and think, oh, that's just hard to believe. I mean, how do I know? How do I know that I'm going to get to heaven? How do I know I'm going to get there and I'll actually find a room reserved for me? I mean, what if he ran out of rooms? What if he didn't make a room for me? My friends, put your fears aside. Jesus said, I know my sheep, and I call them each by name. And my Christian friend, he knows you. He died for you. And he has a place prepared for you. You can trust the ultimate, perfect planner, preparer, Jesus Christ. He has a room for you. He has a place for you in his Father's house. You need not doubt. And other Christians might be wrestling with that idea, thinking, well, what if I get there and find out that, what if I get there and find out I haven't paid sufficient amount for my reservation? Well, what if I haven't done enough? What if I haven't done enough to earn a place in God's house? My friend, put your, put your wallet away. Put your wallet of goodness, of merit, of morality away. The price has been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. The price has been paid. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. Many rooms. That old word, I wanted to mention that word because some of us learned years ago in the King James mansions and 
when we get our attention all in the wrong place because the word mansion in our day means a fancy, expensive house, right? Well, back when the King James Bible was written, mansion, quite frankly, meant room. <laughs> so the point isn't the expense of the house. The, the point is the person who lives there, God. And he's invited you to his house. He, he's planned for you to be at his house. What a glorious idea. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, lest we begin to let our imaginations run wild and think somehow that uh, Jesus doesn't have all the construction project done or, you know, some of the rooms aren't finished yet, <laughs> that, that's not the point. The point isn't that the rooms aren't ready. The point is that Jesus is preparing the way to get there. I was reading something John Piper preached on this, and I found it so helpful I cut and pasted it into my notes. So these aren't my words. These are the words of John Piper. He said on this text, he said, every obstacle between us and our room in the Father's house is about to be removed in the next three days. Sin has not been atoned for, and Jesus is the Lamb of God about to be slain. The wrath of God, the condemnation, the curse of God is still unsatisfied, and Jesus is about to become a curse for us and endure the bruising of the Father. Death is yet to be defeated. And Jesus is about to give his life and take it back again from the jaws of death. And I found Dr. Piper's words there so helpful when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's saying, any remaining obstacles between you and the room I have prepared for you, I'm going to deal with in the next three days. I'm going to pay the price for your sin. I'm going to take your punishment. And I'm going to guarantee that you will have life as I rise from the dead on Sunday morning. He's going to take care of everything needed to make sure this happens. And then Jesus says, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He's talking about home, a place of security, a place of acceptance, a place of love. But what's the heaven of heavens? What's, what's the very best part of heaven? We get to see Jesus. We get to see Jesus. I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. A little bit later that night, probably on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed a prayer out loud, and the men were allowed to hear him pray. And in that prayer, Jesus said this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us to be with him. He wants us to be with him. You know, every one of us in this room have experienced rejection of one kind or another, some minimally and some majorly. But we all know the disappointment of rejection in this fallen world. But to realize the only one who really matters in the end, Jesus Christ, is not going to reject us. The cross is proof. And Jesus says, I, I want you to be with me. And when you're with me, I want you to see the best thing you could ever see. The sumum bonum, the, 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 the greatest good thing, the goodest good thing is to see my glory. There's an old hymn. 
It goes like this. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I, I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gives, but on, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. My friends, that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed as believers. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us as his followers. And it's to provide such comfort, such reassurance. And yet Thomas, Thomas in this passage is confused, isn't he? It's not just Philip. And now Thomas, we heard from Peter in the previous passage. Peter had questions and then Philip had questions. And now Thomas has questions. And he says, we don't know where your father's house is. Jesus, if we don't know where you're going, how are we supposed to know the way to get there? How can we know the way to God's house? How can we know the way to heaven? It's a simple question. It's a profound question. And Jesus answers it quite directly, doesn't he? Look at verse 6 of John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said clearly, I am the way. Now I want to slow down for a few minutes on this because this is such a needed topic in our current culture. Many people in our Western culture assume, some rather passionately by the way, that there are many valid ways to God. Now now you can trace this sociologically to see how this happens. Uh, we're, we're living in a world that's getting smaller through travel, immigration, the media, our ability through the internet to connect with people anywhere in the world. We now rub shoulders on a regular basis with people from different nationalities, different ethnic groups, different languages. We are living in a global village. Now hear me clearly on this. To live in this global village, we have to learn to get along with people who aren't like us. We've had painful reminders of that in the last week here in America. We must learn to get along with people who aren't like us. Not only toleration, but I would say acceptance. To treat other people as fellow image bearers, whether we agree with them or not. There's no place for us Christians to reject people to hate people just because they're not like us. Living in a global village means that we need to work hard at mutual acceptance. But there is a a leap in logic. there's, There's something wrong with people's thinking when they assume that because I treat other people as equal, as image bearers, then that must mean that all religions are equal. That all religions are equally valid. And there's a strong push for this in our culture. There's a strong push to treat all religions as equally valid. Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Christianity, even neo-paganism is considered, are all considered valid religions and must be accepted as equally valuable. The problem is not, the, the issue is not what you believe, but how sincere you are in believing it. And I, I'm almost sure there are people at your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood who would say, If you're into Christianity, that's fine with me. What's right for you is right for you. And what's right for me is right for me. 
my way is just as good as your way. Live and let live. So what did the God come in the flesh one say? What did he say? He said, I am the way. Jesus is saying more than I know the way. He's saying more than I'm a good way. He's saying more than I'm the best way. He is saying clearly, concisely, I and I alone am the way to God. I am the alone am the way to heaven. He is saying there is no other way. I'm the only way to God. I'm the only way to eternal life. And you know, in our culture, we, we sit back on that and we say, what gives you the right to say that, Jesus? What gives you the right to make such a, an exclusive claim that you're the only way to God, that you're the only way to heaven? What right do you have, Jesus, to make such an exclusive claim? Fair question. You know what? Jesus deals with that, doesn't he? He not only said, I am the way, but what did he say next? I am the truth. Now follow me here. Can you think of any other leaders of religion who started their existence in heaven? Muhammad did not start out in heaven. Muhammad was born here on the earth. Buddha did not start out in heaven. He started out here on the earth. And, and you could say that about every leader of every other religion. Jesus and Jesus alone didn't start here. <laughs> he was in heaven before he was here. Jesus Christ existed in eternity past as God. Keep your finger in John 14, but let's go back to the beginning of John's gospel. Isn't this how John begins his gospel account in John 1? For sake of time, let's do this. Let's just read the first two verses, and then I'm going to drop down and read verse 14 and verse 18. So this is how John begins his gospel account. This is his opening statement. In the beginning was the Word. The Word's another name for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, shock value. Get down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18. Listen to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, in fact, I'm the only way, he's saying that from the perspective of being the truth. He alone is the truth. He existed in all eternity past with God. He ex existed in all eternity past as God. And then as John says in 1.18, he came to explain God to us. And so Jesus did not begin in Mary's womb. Jesus did not begin in that Bethlehem stable. Jesus always was, and he was in heaven. And so when he came to this planet, when he came to this fallen, troubled planet, he came as God. He came from heaven. And from that perspective of knowing God, from that perspective of knowing God's righteous requirements, he speaks as the truth. I am the way and the truth. And then he says, and the life. 
No one else has the power to give life, but Jesus does. As John says in his prologue in chapter 1, he says, nothing was created apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is creator God. He has the authority, the power to give life to all things. He gave you life, me life. And that's not true just physically, but it's also true spiritually. In John chapter 5, verse 21, some of you were here when we looked at that passage. Jesus said, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wills. The Son gives life. Jesus has life in and of himself. Eighteen years from now, he'll hang dead on a Roman cross. But then on Sunday morning, he will take up his life again, resurrected, victorious over death, victorious over hell itself. But he also has authority to give life, eternal life. Remember just weeks before this, when he was talking to Martha before he raised Lazarus from the dead? He said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And in case there's any question to what he's saying, look at verse 6 again. Jesus adds his tagline. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now let's be clear. You won't get to heaven through religious systems, but through Christ alone. You won't get to heaven through your parentage, but through Christ alone. You won't get to heaven through the sacraments, but through Christ alone. You will not get to heaven through personal morality, but through Christ alone. You will not get to heaven through philanthropy, but through Christ alone. <coughs> you will not get to heaven by doctrinal acumen, but through Christ alone. I think one of the most profound statements on this issue is in Acts 4.12, where Peter, who was there that night in the upper room, some weeks later was talking to the religious leaders. And in Acts 4.12, we have recorded his words. Listen carefully. Peter said, by the Spirit's empowerment, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And I'll tell you a word that sticks out boldly to me in that statement. And it's the word given to men. You know, every other religion, every other religion in this world does have something in common. You exclude biblical Christianity, you compare all the other religions, they, do have, they all have something in common. They're man's attempt to make a road to God. Let's build a road to God. And some religions do it this way, other religions do it that way. But every religion in the world, apart from biblical Christianity, is man's attempt to get to God. I need to build a road to God. I need to build a way to God. Let's do it this way, through the sacraments, through morality, through religious rites, whatever it is. But Peter said in Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven. That means no matter where you are in the world, given to men. Given to men. Given implies something. It implies a giver. Well, who gave? The name by which we could be saved. God himself. Biblical Christianity is not man's attempt to get to God. It is God making his way to man. It's top down. It's given to men. That God sent his son. 
He sent his son to this fallen world to be our Savior. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the only way who will get us to heaven. Friends, I want to pause a minute and ask you a serious question. What is the biggest problem you've ever faced? Don't answer that out loud, but I want you to think about it. What is the biggest problem you've ever faced? You know what? I don't know how many hundreds of people are in this room, but I guarantee you that there are hundreds of troubles. But you know there's one problem that exceeds all others, looms over all others, and it's a problem we all share. How can I be right with God? How can I, a rebel, how can I, a sinner, how can I, a spiritual criminal, ever be accepted by the perfectly holy God? And Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You want to come to the Father? Come through me. I'm the only way. I'm the only one that can get you there. You see, the biggest problem you have ever faced, the biggest problem I have ever faced, is how can I be right with God? And Jesus is personified the answer to that problem. One preacher said this, Believing that Jesus is the way will comfort your troubled heart because you have access to the gracious Father through Him. Through Jesus, you can bring all your troubles into the very presence of God who spoke the universe into existence. Believing that Jesus is the truth will comfort your troubled heart because all else is subjective, shifting, uncertain. You can stand securely in the truth of who Jesus is. Believing that Jesus is the life will comfort your troubled heart because trusting in Him gives assurance of eternal life and escape from the second death. Friends, if you can trust Jesus with the biggest problem, the biggest trouble you've ever faced, how to be right with God, you can trust Him with the other problems that you face. We can trust Jesus. We can and must believe Jesus not only for what and how, but for the when. (laughs) So he's coming back. He's going to take us to our father's house, his father's house. When's that going to be? Well, Jesus himself said, and I'm quoting now from Matthew 15, 13. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And that's true. None of us knows what date on the calendar Jesus is coming back. But he is coming back. He promised us that. And I think of what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 4 of the first letter. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the, second, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air. And listen to this. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Friends, if you think about it, what were you created for? What were you created for? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you know, if we were to go back before sin entered the human race, back with Adam and Eve, it seems from reading in Genesis, it seems that they enjoyed a fellowship with God, that God would maybe come in the cool of the day just to talk with Adam and Eve. That was home. It was home. God was there. They were with God. God was with them. It was home. It was a place of acceptance and love and joy and glory. And yet Adam and Eve chose to rebel against Creator God, and they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. 
And friends, think about it. You and I have been living in exile ever since. We've been living in exile ever since. The whole human race is living in exile from our designed home because of our sin. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, God's put eternity in our heart. There's there's something inside of us that says, there's got to be something more than this. There's got to be something better than this. I didn't find the I didn't look for the quote, but wasn't it C.S. Lewis that said, if you find your heart dissatisfied with this world, maybe you were created for another? It's a good question. And if you find yourself dissatisfied, troubled by this world, maybe it's a reminder that we're not home yet. We're not home yet. We were designed, created by God to be in this loving, joyful acceptance of Him, that we were to live with God and He with us. And we're living in this era between the gardens. We're living in this fallen world and we're experiencing the troubles of living in a fallen world. And we say, will it ever get better? And the answer is, oh, yes. That Jesus has plans for bringing us home. Home to be with Him. Right toward the very end of the Bible, we read these phenomenally encouraging words. This St. John who wrote the Gospel of John was allowed to have a glimpse of what's coming in the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 21, John wrote this, Then I saw, oh, it's hard to read this passage without crying tears of joy. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Friends, that's you and me. We're the bride. We're the New Jerusalem. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling of God is with man. And He will dwell with them and, and they will be His people himself will be with them as their God. My friends, when that happens, we'll be home. We'll be home. The former things are gone. They're passed away. There's an epilogue to this passage, and I won't have time to expound on it, but let me read it with you, for you, in chapter 14, verses 12 through 14 and make one overarching comment. Jesus said, after this interchange, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. Now put yourself again in the place of these 11 men, Judas has left, these 11 men in that upper room. And they're hearing this talk. They're hearing this talk of betrayal and denial and departure. And and they're wondering what's going to happen. And Jesus is leaving. Is the whole mission of Jesus Christ just going to come to a screeching halt? Might the 11 of us somehow limp along and try to keep it going for a while? And between the time of Jesus' death and resurrection and the time He comes back, Jesus says, oh no, 
My work isn't going to come to a screeching halt. It's not just going to go limping along. It's going to get bigger. It's, it's going to be more profound than you ever imagined. Because Jesus is going to heaven, and as he goes to heaven, he's sending his spirit. And as he sends his spirit, the work of Jesus Christ from heaven, through his people, by the power of the spirit, is going to expand his gospel, spreading it around the world. And there's going to be phenomenal things happening between his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. That's where we're living, here and now. That's why you are sitting in that seat right now. There's great hope, even as we await that glorious day. So, next two Sundays from now, Pastor Mark's going to pick up in the following passage and teach us more about the Holy Spirit. The reason I said two weeks is next Sunday, we have the privilege of setting aside Pastor Mark as our new lead pastor. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you can be with us. We wouldn't want to miss that. Friends, in this fallen world, there are times of trouble, times of pain, times of confusion, times of uncertainty. But as we encounter the troubles in this fallen world, let us remember the words of our our Master, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And let us remember that this troubled world that we now live in is not all that there is. This is not the last chapter. That there is a glorious eternity awaiting us. I read to you a while ago from the opening verses of Revelation 21. I think I read verses 1 through 3. Let let me read 4 and 5 and let this resonate in your hearts even as we pray and the worship team comes. John continues in that passage, Listen, my hurting friend, my troubled friend. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, you can hang your life on that. You can put all of your hope on that. Let not your heart be troubled. 